0: It's a very deep, powerful kind of learning that people go through when they work with the arts. And one of the reasons is because it's a kind of a universal alphabet of creative expression. We all know how to speak this language. We may not be confident. We may not, you know, maybe a little prompt or a nudge to get us started. But we all belong in this. Once we, we bring ourselves to it, it changes us. It sticks. I think of this as kind of the universal theory of arts-based learning. It's that you can teach using almost any art tool if you do it right, because we're bringing so much of ourselves. The doing it right means making sure that we are bringing our real authentic selves to what it is that we're doing.
1: Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. This is the second part of our conversation with Harvey Seifter and Fred Mandel, the two co-founders of Creating Futures That Work, an organization that leverages the teaching of creative skills and creative arts to help people become better innovators. In the first part of the conversation, we followed the individual leadership journeys that Fred and Harvey went on. Fred was, for 20 years, worked at American Express and ended up being the COO and VP of marketing of American Express Financial Advisors. And so in our conversation, he talked about his leadership journey, the differences between managing a small team of 50 people and going to be responsible for five different business units, and how you manage to keep the culture still throughout the organization. Harvey was the CEO of Orpheus, the conductorless orchestra. In his conversation, he talked about the parallels between being the CEO and the business, and the way that the decisions were made during the creative process in the orchestra. And for those who are not musicians, there's actually a fascinating discussion about all the decisions that go into playing a piece of music, even though everybody is starting from the same score and how these decisions can influence the final outcome of the music and the parallel between that process and the creative process that a business team can follow. In part two of the conversation, which you are about to listen to, we dig deep into all the work that went into creating creating futures that work. The you know it's we're talking about over a decade of research involving thousands of people to develop the testing instrument that Creative Futures That Work uses to assess people's ability to innovate. And we talk about the haha moments that Fred went through when he realized the connection between sculpting bronze and being in a boardroom and how that led him to to bring this process into Fortune 1000 companies. So enjoy this part of the conversation. And if you haven't listened to it when you're done with part two, go back and listen to part one. I wanted to go back to sort of early on in our conversation. So you both have had your careers and several experiences that lead you to this idea that there is a powerful connection between teaching creative disciplines and being an effective leader, be more effective in business. How did you two meet and sort of what is the journey from then on to where you are now?
2: We had met, I think it was March 2015, down in New York. Uh, Harvey treated me to a lunch at a, one of his favorite restaurants. And um, we just talked uh, about the work that we w- were doing. We had been introduced by a friend, Steve Taylor, who teaches at uh, WPI i said you two guys got to meet and that conversation was very rich and meaningful and energetic and insightful and we just had a sense that there was an opportunity so we went away and then fairly shortly after that i got a phone call from a former colleague of mine at american express who just become the ceo of a company within a, a fortune 300 company and she was assigned to do some innovative work, and she wanted me to begin to work with her leadership team. I wanted to be able to measure the impact of the work that I was doing with them. So I reached out to Harvey because I know he had created this remarkable, innovative instrument that assesses skills, and he agreed to come on board and to collaborate. That work turned pretty quickly into a co-creating opportunity to work together That engagement lasted for three and a half, almost four years, and it got deeper and richer. And at the end of that, we kind of looked at each other and said, you know, uh, this has been great. Do we want to formalize this relationship? And that's when we decided to create the organization, creating futures that work. So Harvey, you know, from your perspective?
0: Well, I think that pretty well tells the story. A little bit of backfill in the context. At that time, I was in the middle of one of a whole series of National Science Foundation funded research projects that were looking at arts based learning and trying to, first of all, identify the best practices for using the arts to spark creativity and innovation in science, technology, business, and so forth. And then to find ways of testing that. First, in the field, we developed a series of incubators. That's actually what brought me to Worcester and uh, our connection with Steve Taylor of Worcester Polytechnic, because one of, Worcester was one of the sites for those incubators. And then finally, to do experimental research, the learning tools that we developed to study their impact, creative thinking skills, collaborative behaviors, and the innovation outputs of teams, and to do that under controlled experimental conditions. So I was in the middle of all of this, those kinds of things, and I think at the time that Fred and I had uh, had our lunch, I was kind of preoccupied very much with a lot of the questions of measurement because we were just in the middle of doing that research, and also realizing that in the process of doing that, we'd taken a lot of great practices and built a whole curriculum around it. so it's about eighty hours of different kinds of, of learning activities that use all of the arts. So I was really thrilled when Fred brought this potential opportunity to put some of these things to work in a practical environment initially around the measurement. What I saw in the first workshops that Fred conducted there was some wonderful ways of using the arts that I hadn't been doing and that I hadn't thought of and neither had the people that I had gathered around me. And I realized that there was a tremendous opportunity here to enrich all of our practices by bringing some of that together. So began to explore and play with that with the client and uh, found that these things
1: worked marvelously together. So it's been kind of one step after another. And Fred, your interest in the work with the arts is something that you mentioned you developed over your time since you left American Express in the early 2000s. Is that correct?
2: Well, it goes back earlier. I mean, I'd, I'd always been interested in art and art making. I remember when I was 15 years old, I used to Take uh, 15 cents and a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and hitchhike into New York and take the subway and go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and then eat my peanut butter and jelly sandwich on the steps of the Metropolitan (laughs) Museum of Art. So it goes way back. And at one point, I was thinking of doing a doctorate in uh, uh, art history. Instead, I chose uh, intellectual history and pursued that. But what happened when I was toward the end of my Time in the corporate world was I really got a a hankering uh, to use my hands to express some of the things that were roiling around inside of me. So that's when I began to take workshops, programs, seminars in art and art making, specifically around sculpture and bronze sculpture. So I did that. And after three years, I had a one person show of my work. People put down good hard cash uh, for some pieces. And I said, Whoa, my goodness. This is not what I expected, but it's wonderful. So I continued and moved toward painting and drawing. And today, I'm still very active in terms of um, creating artwork. Right now, I'm working on a a wood carving series of interesting critters that are inspired by George Baselitz, the German artist. So that continues as well. So for me, there is huge synergy. Between art and art making, the process, some of which Harvey had described earlier, and the kinds of capabilities and processes that leaders go through in organizations. So, the arts can be powerful, powerful, resonant, immersive learning experiences that are fully transferable into the secular role of leader in organizations.
1: When, by the time you met Harvey, you already had been using art training within corporate settings. Is that correct? Yes. Tell me about like the first time when you had this intuition like, oh, what I'm doing as an artist really connects into my world as a business leader. And I want to try and experiment that. What was that like? What was the first exercise?
2: I can pinpoint that for you, actually. So I was doing my artwork taking these workshops and so forth. During that time, I also did a deep dive into the lives and working processes of the great masters of art, because I wanted to understand more about that creative process and what specific skills enable them to sustain that creative output over a lifetime. So I did that research, reading their biographies, their autobiographies, their letters, where they were available and so forth. But there was one particular event. When you do bronze sculpture. You reach a certain point where you have the sculpture encased in a cement encasement and you pour molten, you get dressed in protective regalia, and you pour 2,000 degree molten bronze into the encasement, which melts the wax and forms the sculpture itself. And I remember feeling how hot it was, even though I was wearing protective gear and saying to myself, Man, this reminds me of phrases I heard in the um, boardroom. If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. And all of a sudden, it began to click for me that here I was in this heated, creative process. And it had relevance. It had lessons to teach leaders. So from that, I began to put together these programs, immersive exercises which, when I brought them back into organizations, had such a powerful set of ahas for leaders that the learning was durable, it was lasting, and it was memorable. So not only did they learn insights about leadership, but it stayed with them over a period of time because of the unique nature of the experience.
1: You know, one of the really, really important things that you said in this phrase is that it stayed with them. Like we all understand on an intuitive basis what we should do, but it's the ability for that concept of the what we should do to stay with us and that being translated into action that drives improvement and change.
0: It's a very deep, powerful kind of learning
1: that people go through when they work with the arts. And
0: one of the reasons is because it's a kind of a universal alphabet of creative expression. We all know how to speak this language. We may not be confident, we may not, you know, we may need a little prompt or a nudge to get us started, but we all belong in this. Once we bring ourselves to it, it changes us, it sticks. It, there are things that grow out of that that are, that that are powerful and resonant and apply in nonlinear ways that you discover more of over time. I think of this as kind of the universal theory of arts-based learning. Based on all my experience as a teacher and working leaders, it's that you can teach almost anything to almost anyone using almost any art form if you do it right. Because we're bringing so much of ourselves, the doing it right means making sure that we are bringing our real, authentic selves to what it is that we're doing. Working with uh, with clay sculpture or floating paints on the surface of the water and using that to to make art with, whether we're doing it with spoken word or theater, it doesn't matter. These are essential aspects of who we are. And when we engage those essential aspects in learning, it
1: changes who we are. It changes our leadership and we don't forget. So you take me through the part of the journey also that led you to meet with Fred. You specifically focused on formalizing sort of exercises and then actually measuring the impact. What are some of the examples of the studies that you conducted and the some of the big insights that you had that made you realize that you were on the right track? So we went through, through several stages of this. The
0: first one was actually taking all the work that I'd been doing informally over the previous decade and actually organizing that in some learning modules. And then I reached out and did a network around the world, found that people were doing what I thought was just the most interesting and exciting work with arts-based learning, learning their processes and their practices and incorporating the best ones of that into it. So we had a beginning of a model for a curriculum. So then had this idea that the best way to test that would be to put it to work in very creative, unconventional learning. So we decided to create incubators for innovation. These incubators would be made up of hundreds of people coming from every imaginable background, artists and scientists and business leaders and students university presidents and architects and just people coming at it from many, many different perspectives in different types of communities, big cities like Chicago, smaller industrial ones like Worcester, Massachusetts. And we asked nonprofit partners in those communities to help us identify key problems. So once we'd identified the major challenge that that each community wanted to work on, in San Diego, at the height of the drought, we worked on water resources. So then we used all of these arts-based learning tools that we developed and that we've codified. We used that as a basis for the entire incubator to become a learning community. So they dove in, did all of this work. They actually did it twice. They did it first just to learn the processes and explore on a different challenge. And then they, they did it to learn and explore the challenge that they wanted to actually be working on. And then they sorted themselves into teams and then those teams dug deeper. They worked for a year. We supported them in different ways. We also tracked them and gathered tremendous amounts of data. So at the end of all of this, we had 30 innovation teams that were tackling wicked problems that were cross-sector problems and these were cross-disciplinary and multi-generational learning communities. We were able to see the power of what was happening here when we saw that 22 of those 30 teams were actually able to go to market with at least MVPs of viable solutions these very difficult problems then the, the final phase of that process was then to take and distill down the set of the learning tools and the workshops that we had developed and test them in experimental research so we actually set up entirely separate cohorts and eight member teams and we had control ones and treatment ones the control ones worked on innovation projects using a standard really good innovation best practices kind of project oriented curriculum and the experimental ones, we scooped out nine of those hours and we had them instead doing arts based learning activities around modeling and sculpture and theater and music. And then we measured them all on creative thinking skills, on collaborative behaviors, on innovation outputs, and the results were really striking. And there were statistically significant, very powerful results. We found that eleven different measures of creative thinking that were and critical thinking that were significantly improved in the group that was working with Arts space Learning. We found all of these measures around trust and mutual respect and empathy in the in the collaboration that was improved. And finally in terms of the actual results that, that the teams were able to come up with in their five week innovation projects, we saw these huge differences that were sometimes as great as two points on a five point
1: scale. And this was work that went over A decade, roughly, of work? Yes. And that some of this is the work that was done in partnership with the National Science Foundation? Yes. Overall, how many people came through, if you think about all the programs across all the different studies? Ballpark, several thousand. Several thousand. Okay, great. And so you have all this research with this way to measure, this different critical skills to innovation. Harvey has his practical arts-based exercises. How did this come together in your current programs? The work that Fred was doing
0: and developed was both different from but just an organic, natural fit with with the work that I've been doing. We were both, in our own ways, tackling a lot of the same challenges and for the same reasons. We had the same underlying objectives that we were trying to achieve and the same beliefs that were going into it. So, for example, a lot of the work that Fred developed was around seeing strands. One of the things that struck me from the very beginning of my intentional work with the arts and learning and leadership was how spending time really engaged with the arts as a student, as a practitioner, as a consumer. It changes literally how you see the world. I mean, there are these wonderful eye-tracking studies that show that people that spend a significant amount of time with art in those ways, they take in much more of the world around them, they see more. They see it from different perspectives. Well, Fred found ways that were really wonderful and also very, very, very short and concise and focused to take people through some of those key experiences and then see them translate into action for themselves. A lot of what that did is that gave them aha moments and confidence to dig deeper and into some of the more challenging things that might take longer to actually develop. And so giving them that, those opportunities and the courage and the context for these seeing strategies, that was a very rich way then to work with that and bring together some of the other work that we've been doing. So that, that's one example, oh, one other really important example that I would give, and that is that Fred has had, always had, at least certainly as long as I've known him, and I would guess long, much longer than that, has had a really powerful and wonderful focus on the power of reflection, the importance, and how that relates to all of the rest of it. Since among many things, reflection is how we actually translate these experiences into a new reality. It's where real deep learning takes place. And he, for him, working with the arts and reflective practice aren't two distinct separate things. And I think I'd Probably felt that before, but I certainly hadn't articulated. And uh, so, although we built those reflective practices into our work, Fred found ways to take that to the next level. And so that was another way where we were able to collaborate and build some really good.
2: So, in terms of the work, what we've been able to do most of the work that Harvey and I have done together so far has been taking this work directly into organizations, where we would work with leadership teams and so on. During the COVID period, we kind of stepped back like everyone else. We were forced to step back and we began to think about other ways in which we could give this, uh, bring this work into the world because we're committed to scaling arts based learning uh, into the world. And we decided that we would create some programs for coaches because we believe coaches are natural learners and that they depend powerfully on the power of personal relationships. So we put together a certification program. And the certification program essentially unites two different elements of the work that we've been doing. Number one, it certifies participants in the assessment instrument that Harvey developed over more than a decade of work. And it brings together what we call the learning portfolio. And these are the resonant, powerful, arts-based experiential learning activities exercises and workshops that people can use to work with clients whether it's individual leaders or teams so that's the program that we are offering to the coaching community today
1: great and I, i will add to that that i have actually the reason part of the reason why we met is that i was lucky enough to be introduced to the program and took the first program that was administered and i'm at and I, would add the one thing that is very powerful about the program is that even though you're offering the learning portfolio, which is a whole set of activities, the program also provides a framework to develop more and diverse art-based experiences to learn. and 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 as a matter of fact, I am currently working with my wife, who's been professor of songwriting at Berkeley for twenty years to develop a workshop specifically that leverages the process of, uh, writing a song within the context of your learning framework. Great. Great. Final question. We have covered, actually, you guys covered the sort of business cliches and almost spontaneously earlier on. So (laughs) we're going to skip that question. And the final question that I always like to ask to my guests, and I think, you know, you are particularly qualified to answer that question. I call it either food for the body or food for the soul. And I gave my guests an option to pick one, whether they want to talk about a a recipe or a drink, or that would be the food for the body, or a food for the soul, if they're a piece of art, a piece of music, a novel, a movie, a TV show, something that really has inspired you.
2: Well, let me take a first crack at it. I'm going to do both because the food for the body is pretty short and it's two words. One is chocolate and the other is corn on the cob when it's in season. I consider both of those to be food for the body.
0: But not in combination.
2: I have not yet tried chocolate dipped corn. But, but at your suggestion, I just might do that. <laughs> in terms of food for the soul, I'll throw out two different things. One, I just finished a wonderful novel called A Paragon by Colum McCann. Very powerful. And you know, speaking about approaching a problem from different perspectives, he does a masterful job. Very powerful, very moving, brilliant book. And then for me personally, it's art making. It's being in the process of creating something with a fresh perspective, but heightens my own sense of who I am and what I need to express that's with inside of me. That's great.
0: Harvey? Well, I guess I'll I'll also do a little bit of both kinds of food here. So for the body, I spent much of really the entire year or the first year anyway of the pandemic out in the country and I've always loved to barbecue but this gave me an opportunity to do that non-stop for close to a year so I came up with dozens of new recipes and more than any one particular one I mean there's there's a swordfish one that, that I really love but more than any one in particular it's just the idea that if I could organize my time I could, you know, well, I could spend uh, a day at least once a week just inventing something totally new and trying it out and learning from it. And I, I love that process. So, for the soul, two things. So, one, for my whole life, the most powerful artistic food for my soul has been Mozart, and it has been throughout this time. And uh, I'm sure will be tomorrow as well. The second is I love exploring new writers about two or yeah, maybe three years ago i discovered a writer named ha jin who i don't know if you if you know him, he's, a, he's a really wonderful writer and uh, his newest novel song everlasting is one that i just finished a couple of weeks ago and it's still very much resonating within me it has so it actually touches on so many things not because of the explicit subject matter, but because of the nature of the characters, the challenges they face, the choices they make about authenticity and leadership and personal expression and consequences and all of those kinds of things. Very rich novel. So for the first time in my period in theater was producing plays, but it was also exploring lots of new art forms because a lot of the work that I produced during those years was very experimental and. And for the first time in, in quite a few years, i turned back to that whole question of new art forms and experimenting with it. And it comes together in an interesting way with the work that, uh, that Fred and I are doing, in that I had this idea about, when I first started working on this instrument, even before I met Fred, I had this idea that an ideal instrument that looked at human creativity could capture some kind of an image of what that was like, in enough detail that you could almost think of it as a surat with a million data points and lots of subtlety and that it could change over time because creativity like everything else in the mind is is very plastic. and that was an interesting idea and i kind of sort of let that sit there and think about it much in recent years and i suddenly realized a couple of months ago when i was in the middle of of debugging our current version of the of the instrument that we actually have the building blocks to try to tackle what that looks like. Not as a It's not going to have a million data points. It's probably going to have about 100 me, But that may be enough to to capture some interesting things. So I've begun to kind of explore and play with different ideas. I have no idea what it's going to lead to, if it's going to lead to something that, that will have practical application. But I'm excited about using forms of art and the, the materials of art to capture insights and share those insights that can lead
1: to learning, but also lead to appreciation for our own creativity. That is fabulous. Thank you so much. It, it's interesting you're mentioning Sirak, because he's actually one of my favorite painters. I think he's one of those painters you fall in love when you're young, because it's very easy to connect to. And then over time, you develop like a combination for a little more appreciation of like the technique that it takes to achieve what it does. And then there's always always that component for me personally of, you know, being one of the first artists where I really felt like, oh, I have a connection with this piece of art that is specific to me. Fred and Harvey, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Incredibly insightful as every conversation I've had with you. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you on behalf of our listeners. You know, thanks for having us. It. it was fun, and it was a really rich discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please tell all your friends and talk about it in social media. If you're listening on an Apple podcast, GoodPod, or any other platform that allows reviews, leave us a good review, hopefully a five-star review. And of course, whatever platform you're listening in, make sure that you subscribe so that you get new episodes as they are added. If you like music, stick around because as promised at the end of the credits, I will share a new song. If you want to connect with Fred and Harvey, you can find them LinkedIn and on the websites that they use for their work, futuresthatwork.com and artofsciencelearning.org. If you want to learn about my workshops to help your organization deal with volatility and uncertainty, including my arts-based songwriting workshop taught by my wife, Susan Catania, who, as I mentioned previously, has been a songwriting professor at Berklee College of Music for 20 years, you can go to vucaworkshop.com, which is spelled V-U-C-A, workshop.com. If you're looking for the podcast, you can find me online at al4ep.com with the number 4, and you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at al4edp, and you can also find me on Facebook. This episode was produced by me, Dino Catania, with editing by Fullcast. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Catania, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Salvarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. I normally share a song from Susan's solo catalog, but for this episode, I actually picked a song from her band, Honest Mechanic. The song is called Love Alone, and I picked it because it contains this great line. When all is lost and falls apart, I know that I'll be saved by art. Enjoy.
3: I can't make it on love alone. I can't move like a rolling stone. I can't wait for a ghost to show. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I made love to love and it was fine. Bye. i